I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number seven. Today, we're going to be talking about hunting and managing for mature whitetails. And joining us is Lee and Tiffany Lukoski of the Outdoor Channel's Crush TV with Lee and Tiffany. You are not going to want to miss this. So stick around, settle in, and enjoy. All right, good afternoon, Wired Hunt Nation. My co-host Dan Johnson and I are very excited today for this podcast because joining us are two of the most well-known figures in the whitetail hunting world, Lee and Tiffany Lukoski. Welcome to the show, guys. Hey, good to be here. Yeah, great to be here. Yeah, we really appreciate you guys taking the time to join us. How are you guys doing this afternoon? We are doing awesome. Actually, we just I just picked up Lee from the field. He's uh, trying to get his corn in and trying to catch up on a bunch of stuff because, of course, we've been turkey hunting. Yeah, <laughs> I just, yeah, it's like, you got to run down here with the ranger because I'm not going to make it back with the tractor. So we just, just literally walked in the door. <laughs> nice. Well, I appreciate you uh, finding the time for sure. How, how did, many acres? Uh, how many acres do you have uh, to plant, Lee? Well, like food plot wise, it's about between four and five hundred, depending on you know the clover fields that you know if you're redoing some of those or the ones that carry over, you know that you keep them for four and five years. But yeah, you know I think all the food plots together, you know it's probably around five hundred. But it, I probably have at least a hundred acres of clover, so I probably am planting each year around four hundred, and then we have. You know, row crop stuff that we just started taking over too. We used to just lease that out, but there's probably three or four hundred there that we just started taking that back as well. So it's getting to be bigger and bigger from the six little food plots that I had behind our house when we first started, like eight acres <laughs> I used to plant wow. ten years ago, thousand acres. So it's grown fast, that's for sure. Jeez, I have uh, two acres of food plots I need to manage, and I'm intimidated by just that. So I don't even know how you manage uh, five hundred. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's Some days it's not very well. <laughs> yeah. Do what you can. Scattered around. You know, we have like 10 different farms in three different counties. So if it was all in one spot, not so bad, but just moving equipment and just all the logistics of it gets to be 
kind of a nightmare, especially when one field is wet and ours move over to the next spot and it might rain over there and then you got to keep moving around and stuff. But, uh, you know, we get it all done somehow. Man, yeah, I can only imagine. But I guess a bad day on the tractor is still better than a good day in the office, right? <laughs> right, right. All right, well, that said, uh, we've got a lot we were hoping to talk about today. So if you guys don't mind, I was thinking we can dive right into it. So sure. absolutely. So Lee and Tiffany, I'm sure you've heard this before, but you know the biggest complaint that we hear about hunting TV shows and the hunting media in general is that the scenarios and circumstances shown aren't realistic for most average hunters out there. And in some cases this might be true, but with that said, I've got a hunch that there's still a lot that avid whitetail hunters can learn from you and your experiences, regardless of how different your circumstances might be from theirs. So with that said, we wanted to frame our conversation today around this idea. You know, How would you, Lee and Tiffany Lukoski, hunt if you weren't Lee and Tiffany, the Outdoor Channel stars? You know, if you didn't have the great land in Iowa, the sponsored gear, the cross-country trips, you know, if you had the same hand of cards dealt to you as one of our listeners, how would you go about hunting mature deer? So that's kind of the overall theme and idea of what we were hoping to explore today. But with that said, yeah, was, um, sorry, go ahead, Lee. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, I hear that a lot. Um, and really, you know, for us, it's we were shooting good deer you know, long before we had a TV show and, uh, you know, it, I don't, I don't think we, I mean, we wouldn't be doing anything different than we are right now without, you know, if we weren't doing a TV show, if I was still an engineer and we wouldn't have as many days to hunt, but, uh, you know, we'd be kind of basically doing the same thing. Um, you know, there's, well, I mean, really, we bought our first farms well before we ever had a TV show and we're doing anything professionally like this. You know, we bought his first farm down in Kansas and with a couple of buddies. And then after, I mean, and I remember going down there planning all the food plots and doing all that stuff just on our days off. And then we bought our first farm in Iowa. Like I said, we didn't have a TV show back in the days when we were doing that stuff. Right, right. Now, I read your guys' book a few years ago, really enjoyed that. Um, and like you said, I know that you guys were killing uh, mature deer even back before all this, I know, I think you were um, killing some pretty nice deer in Minnesota, Lee. Um, so I was curious, maybe to kick things off, could you tell us a little bit about how specifically you were you know, hunting those deer in Minnesota when you were just start, just first getting started? You know, it it all comes down to work. You know, uh, you know there's, just, there's a lot of people that say, oh, I want to shoot a good deer, but they don't really want to put any of the time and effort into it. And that's okay. It's just, it depends on how bad you want something. Right. It's just like there's, you know, if you were born, a, you know, a good athlete and you work super hard for 20 years at it, you could be a pro athlete. If you're really smart, you could work 20 years and, you know, really hard and you could be a doctor. And if you just had that real passion for whitetails and work really hard, you'll shoot a lot of good ones. It's no different than anything that you want to do in life it depends on how bad you want it i think a lot of people they just you know they think that you know others oh, just um you know like tiffany and i well, we're just lucky we have a good spot or whatever and if they could you know hunt our farms they could just go out in the weekends and shoot a 180 inch deer too but and that is not the case you know there's there's a lot of things that i'd like to have but i'm not just willing willing to work super hard to get them you know, it's, but there are some things that, like, 
deer that I've always just been super fanatical about, and there is no easy way to do it. Um, you know, even like a lot of other animals, like if you want to shoot, you know, a big elk, you can go and pay the money and go on, you know, the White Mountain or something, you'll likely get a good a giant elk. But for whitetail, that doesn't really matter how much money you spend. You cannot go to any outfitter. You can, unless you go to a hot fence, you can't come to my house and say, you know, hey, I want to come here in a weekend and shoot a 170. It's like, heck, we don't do that. We don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> We're on 100 days a year. I mean, and we maybe might shoot a 170, but you might not in a year. And that's 100 days, you know, uh, of hunting. And, and plus, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours of work like we're doing right now, you know, with feeders going and, and all the food plots and you know, all that kind of stuff, it's still hunting them. But at least the advantage that we have is knowing that they're there. But it's no different than when I hunted in Minnesota all summer long. I mean, the minute that the hunting season was over, December 31st, we were looking for the next deer for the next year. And it was shed hunting and, and things like that. And I can say, well, we got 6,000 acres to hunt here. But, heck, when I was in high school in Minnesota, I had 100,000 acres to hunt because I just went and knocked on doors. You had public places. You had, you know, all the places in the world. In Minnesota, it was easier back then, I got to say, because, you know, there wasn't a lot of bow hunters back, you know, 25, 30 years ago when I first started bow hunting. I mean, you'd go knock on doors and they'd be, what, you want to try shooting with a bow? You know, yeah, go, good luck to you. You know, so there was a lot of places to hunt. But it was all summer long, every single night, you know, going out and, and watching fields and, and finding a good deer. And it's no different than right now, even though we have our own property. It's, you're, you're out every night looking for a good deer with what you can hunt for, you know, for next fall. And that's what I did in Minnesota. I just, I would find the fields that had, you know, good deer in them at night. And I'd watch those deer and watch them and watch them and get, you know, cameras on them and, and try to figure them out and try to, try to get a, a shot at them. Like normally the first week was always the best if you could, but then they'd kind of change their patterns. But, you know, then it's, you know, then it's just all the normal hunting stuff, you know, waiting for the rut and hoping that, you know, find where the does are at and, you shed hunting, you find where all those does were bedded and, you know, where you think the, you know, bucks are going to show up. And they're just, you know, basic tactics, but it's a lot of it was it's time and work that you want to put into it. Um, you know, you weren't going in Minnesota and, you know, just blowing the dust off your bow. You're not doing it anywhere on, you know, October 1st and go, say, I'm going to go pick a stump in the woods and sit down and hope I shoot at 180. You might, but you're not going to do it every year and tell you that. So it's, you know, it's it's basically just hard work. And there's all those, you know, there's the tactics and, you know, the food for us is, is the biggest thing. And it's no different than it was for me when I lived in Minnesota when I didn't have anything. You know, there were farm fields and there were alfalfa fields and there were all the ridges of acorns and, and everything. You know, uh, it's kind of it's kind of all about food. And, you know, and you'll hear people say that too. Uh, it's kind of like baiting all these food plots and stuff. It's like that's how you hunt. You hunt ducks on water. You 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 fish with a with a bait on your line. Right. You anything anything that you want to hunt. It's it's normally around food. So, I mean, that's that's really the biggest key to 
to being successful, whether you own your own land or not. And just now with all the food plot things that you can do, you don't need big equipment and things. There's all the different throw-and-grows and clover you can plant just about anywhere with just like an ATV, a little, you know, a little disc without a lot of money and, and get some, you know, some small fields in and things that, uh, and it makes it fun. You know, you got all summer, it just kind of keeps you interested in hunting. But, you know, I don't know if there's any, we can get into specific strategies and things, but I think just, that's the whole piece that people are missing is just that if you really want it and you work really hard at it, you'll get it. Well, look at Todd. I mean, Dan's buddy, Dan, uh, Todd, right there that he mentioned earlier. It's like you think about Todd coming from Michigan, right. moves down to Iowa with not a dime to his name, finally starts his own business, gets something going that's successful. But, I mean, you know, he kind of created a similar type situation, you know. It's yeah. Like, See, I mean, Todd was, like I said, I met, we met Todd. We met Todd Pringis back in in Michigan when we worked with Sunlock. I mean, we'd go over to his house and we'd shoot 3D stuff. And he'd never shot in a good shot a good deer, but he was working out of his house, you know, doing stuff for lone wolf tree stands and everything. And I, I was telling him, I was like, why are you living in Michigan if you're a, you know, a deer fanatic? You know, where <laughs> not you're, that Michigan not that Michigan here. Have yeah, that, you, know, you know, that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> where he lived in the, you know, he just didn't have access to it and he didn't know you know, I mean, they were still getting beer, but not you know really big ones. I said, "Well, you just need to move to Iowa." That's what I did. I just picked up and left. And for you, with your job, you nope, can work. Kids, you can no work family. anywhere. So he did. You know, and then you know, got a little place and just kept working and working and working. You, you know, you ask Todd, he's no different than us. You get up every day and you work at something, and you scratch and claw and you little bit by little bit by little bit. And ten years later, you know, you've got a farm and you've got food pots on it and you've got a wall full of, you know, 150, 160, and, and bigger deer. But it's all about how bad you want it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's just like anything else. You know, I would say I'd like a solid gold toilet, too, but I'm not going to work real hard at it to get one. <laughs> and, you know, so like, you know, it's like, yeah, you might want to shoot a big deer, but if you're not willing to work at it, you just don't want it bad enough. But if you really yeah. want one, you know, and if it's really something you're passionate about and you put in the work, you'll get it. I mean, anyone can do it. Yeah, and I I think also it's, like you said, it's the hard work, and it's also how you prioritize things. So for some people, they might want to go bass fishing and have a nice bass boat, and they might want to do some, uh, you know, pheasant hunting in the fall or something like that too. But if you are, you know, adamant about really wanting to be able to consistently kill those mature deer, you need to prioritize that. And so like what you guys did, you prioritized that. You decided that that was what was important for you, and you did the work and you made the sacrifices to be able to do that. And I, I posted a video. You're absolutely right. I mean, I think to this day, we haven't even ever been on a real date. We haven't been home for a Thanksgiving <laughs> or a Christmas or, I don't know, I guess ever since we've even been together. But we're okay with that, you know. It's like and our families have accepted that now that we'll never be around there at that time. And, and but, you know, I mean, would you like to be home with everybody at Thanksgiving sometimes? Well, yeah, absolutely. But is it like one of the best days ever to hunt? Absolutely. So we're going to be out there. Yeah, it's all choices. That's a fact. Now, I got a question kind of uh, scheming off that previous question. And you said, you know, you guys are hunting uh, 100 days, you know, um, as far as how much how much scouting do you guys do and how much do you rely on trail cameras um, throughout the entire season, let's say, are you scouting a, a, a piece of property all the way into the rut or are you laying off a piece? 
How much do you rely on trail cameras? Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, cameras are are game changer. Yeah, they they're huge because you know most of our farms. I know how to hunt them, and even if they're even when they weren't our farms, you know, just places that we knocked on doors or all of our Kansas stuff that we hunted before, we bought a piece down there was all public, and even the places they hunted in Iowa was just public. But the cameras is what really changed the game for us because before you had the cameras. You know, if a 130 or a 40 came by, you were shooting it because you just didn't know if that might be the biggest deer you're going to see or that may be the biggest deer on the farm. But when you get pictures, you know, of a of a big one, you know, if you had pictures of a 170, it's pretty easy to pass those 130s and 140s knowing that he's there, but you just have to have the discipline to pass those. And, you know, and we didn't always start out that way. We shot a, you know, I've shot a lot of 130s and 40s and 3-year-olds and 2-year-olds but just once you once you shoot one of those, you know, if you, if you if the biggest deer you've ever shot is a fork horn, well then you just say, okay, I've already shot fork horns. If I'm just going to cut the horns off and throw them on the wood pile, I might as well just hold out and I'm going to shoot an eight point. You know, even with a basket rag eight point. And once you do that, you say, okay, well now I want something a little bit bigger. It's just a progressive, you know, it's just the nature of it. So once we shot a lot of three year olds and and things like that, it's like, okay, well let's just move it to four year olds. But you know, so it wasn't always that way. It's not just that it was. It's easy to pass deer because heck, when we first moved down here ten years ago, you know, we shot a few, but certainly not very many. I wasn't passing any 150. That's for sure. But uh, you know, the cameras for me now, and even back then, it was wasn't so much strategy. You know, like how to how to hunt a deer or where to hunt a deer. It was just what's there. I figured I knew how to hunt deer. Uh, even on the public places, you know, we were there all summer and, and shed season. We walked it all during shed season. You'd find all the scrapes and rubs and, you know, pinpoints and how you put your aerial maps and looking at the timber and where do you think they're moving. And, and then you'd see like all the beds and things where does were bedding and where you're finding sheds. You kind of figured out a strategy how to hunt it basically in January and February. But then throughout the whole season, you're just taking an inventory of deer. You figure, okay, if I get a picture of a deer on a field edge, well, sure, I might, I'm going to hunt that field edge, but you're also going to be hunting in the timbers and the pinch points and, you know, and, and like in the rut where all the does were, had been bedding and things. So I always figured I knew how to hunt the farms. I just needed the cameras is for inventory. And uh, you know, that's still the way that we do it now. Our cameras are just basically on you know, feeders and food plots all summer long, and then I'll move them, you know, since I'm the scrapes and stuff in the timber because new ones will show up in November, you know, occasionally. But for the most part, I figure I know how to hunt our farms, and all I need cameras for is the inventory, but that is so important, you know, just knowing what you've got, to, you know, which ones to shoot and which ones not to. And you've those cameras all year long. Yeah, we run them all, all year long. Now we're, even, now we're using them for turkey hunting right now. And then, you know, I mean, already I can't, I can't even believe, like, on a couple of our farms, you know, we have some of the bucks that are already starting to grow antlers that believe, like, that's, you know, Wally. I'm like, how in the world do you know that? But <laughs> that would, yeah, he's like, those are faces. I'm like, oh, I get the faces too, but I can't recognize it. But, um, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, all year long, we definitely run those cameras. So how many cameras are you running, I don't know, per property or per 100 acres or so to get a good inventory of what deer are there? Well, I mean, for us 
totally we have, you know, a couple hundred probably from it was accumulated over the years. But if I had, you know, I mean, I'd put out as many as, as I think I need to. And a lot of the places depends on if you can, if you can bait or not. We can't during the hunting season, and, and you know I wouldn't really be hunting over it anyway because that's you know if you just had a feeder out, it's usually not the best way to, to kill your biggest deer. Um, so even in Kansas where we have farm there, I, I don't run even feeders during the hunting season. I never hunt over them, but like all summer long, I'll keep them going and have the cameras on because that really cuts down the number of cameras you're going to need because. If we have a, you know, 10-acre bean field and you wanted to get pictures of all the deer that are coming in there, you'd need 100 cameras around that thing on every trail to try to catch all the deer that were coming into it. But if you put one feeder in the corner of that bean field at some point or another during the night, uh, about every deer that's feeding in that bean field will make its way over to that feeder and, uh, you know, take a few bites you know, at the corn feeder, even when there's all the food in the in the world out there, they'll always make their way over. And I usually mix, like, our corn with, like, protein pellets or a sugar beet crush works really good for us and where it just gives an extra where the deer just want to come over. And they'll, they'll eat it every night. They'll take a few bites, you know, spend a few minutes there anyway. But that way, just with a, one camera on one feeder in that field, you know, I can cover – you know, get pictures about every single deer that's in that bean field at night where I'd normally need a hundred of them. So it depends on if you can get a feeder in some place and, you know, and if you can, in fact, bait, that it'll really dramatically knock down the cameras you'd need. And if not, you know, it just all depends on the size of the fields. Mostly you're going to get, you know, the summertime is when you're going to get your inventory of bucks. And normally, like on bean fields, you know, in the summer, most of the bucks will be in the back of the groups right there. So a lot of times you can spot them, you know, well, look at them with, you know, through spotting scope and binoculars and then go in there in the afternoon to see, you know, what trails and what corners of the fields are coming out in. And then you might, you know, you might put 10 or 12 cameras out on even one field just to try to get pictures of them. But then, you know, for me, a lot of times once I get pictures of all of them, then, I, then I'll maybe cut those cameras back, just you know, a couple just to kind of get progressive pictures of them. But, you know, once I know they're there, then I don't really need to keep keep after them, you know. I just kind of say, I'll go check those cameras, you know, maybe once a week at least, but, you know, I don't need so many cameras. So it just kind of depends. You know, we run a lot of a lot of cameras that we have a lot of little food plots too, and, you know, like for each, you know, I probably have one feeder for every 75 to 100 acres on these farms. But, you know, I might have those big bean fields that I have a feeder in, but I've also got you know, 10 little food plots that are like an acre or two acres or something that don't have them on. So I'll have cameras and all those because you just don't know, you know, where one of your big deer is going to be hanging out. Because they're not always hanging out in a bean field. It could be hanging out every night in a two-acre clover field. So it kind of it kind of depends, but, you know, you, you, uh, you just kind of look at your situation and what you've got. And, you know, in the summertime, it doesn't really pay to have anything in the timber. It's, you're going to want it, you know, out in the fields where, where the deer are showing up that you know that you can pinpoint them. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. 
Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. I'm going to change the uh, subject here just a little bit and, and talk about management uh, as far, in regards to your properties are concerned. Um, you know, you got you have food plots, you have good cover, and I take it you've you've gone in there and made a mess of things and provided you know thick, nasty cover for them. And um, and from what I've seen on on the show, you're passing giants, mature deer, so you have a good age structure that's allowing you to do that. What's what's a tip or or some advice you can give to a landowner who's looking to maybe resemble what you have? What's what's a good management tip to provide? Well, for me, Mike, the first thing when I when I first started buying property it was always you know was, I you know come from Minnesota it was always all timber you know where I, especially when I hunted when I was a kid it was in northern Minnesota where there was no field. When I got to, when I moved to Iowa, everything that we looked at, <clears throat> I always thought you needed you know big timber, and then I just went in with a dozer and dozed in the food plots. But the, you know, the longer we've been here, the more I realize that you know there's as many deer live in the CRP fields and everything as well. So I kind of even to start with, you know, I look for farms that are maybe a 50-50, you know, timber to fields. And a lot of those fields aren't going to be crop fields. A lot of them will be big CRP fields. And you know, a lot of the CRP here was all just in brome grass. So we you know burn it and kill it and take it all out and put in you know a mixture of a like big blue stem and and uh, um, you know, switch grass and some, you know, native grasses like that that are, you know, some warm season grasses. So um, that's a kind of a big part of it is if, you know, it kind of depends on your property. But to get that tall grass stuff in there, boy, the deer just love laying in that. And that's 
we find so many of the sheds too because you know in the winter time it's still cover in there but the sun can get in there so they lay in that in that grass more than the timber even and to get the sun on them so you know the first thing like i said is you know if you got if you're looking at a piece of property you don't have some already that's about 50 50 is about what i like to look at and then as far as food you know get i get as much as i can in in these places um just uh you know because every farm is different but you know i always thought that well I, you could have too much but you really can't i mean we have fields that are even you know 30 and 40 acres that we just put in into uh into food plots and when you first started that man it was way too much and there was you know food left over but as the years go by that number of deer just grow exponentially especially in late season because now even if we have a 30 acre field like soybeans or, or corn it'll never make it to, to march it'll always be gone and just because it attracts more and more deer and you just figure that's what you kind of want as a hunter in your farm you just want to keep attracting those deer and that's the one time late season that you can get your neighbor's deer. You know, when it comes to your food plots, is there a strategy around where you place them, or are you just looking for wherever you can get a plot in? I'm curious about about what your strategy is there. Um, it's kind of both. Um, some of them, like in our timber, um, like the first farm we had was just like a big piece of timber, and so we really, you know, walked it all and looked at all the aerial maps and stuff. And, and a big part of it is looking at the soil fields, and there's you get the it's soil types on the, you know, there's books for that, even under the timber. So you, know, you hate to go in and, and spend time, you know, with a dozer and everything and find you just have a bunch of clay under there and you can't, nothing yeah, grows. And, yeah, we've done that. So pay to look at your soil first and see what, you know, even in the timber, what has decent enough soil to, to plant in. But uh, so we looked at that a lot. And then, any of the like natural funnels through there, like we have a big creek system through a lot, a lot of our farms, and that one, our first farm in particular. But there was places where it had big, you know, where it had curves in the creek and made big banks that you know were too steep for deer to go down and even for people, you know. It, so you knew that they were following the creek; they couldn't, weren't going to cross right there. So that's where we we put food pots right there and just. Even because it was a big piece of timber, you know, the first piece that we had was, you know, 300 acres of solid timber, and it was like, well, where would you, how do you, how do you hunt it so much, you know, because there's oaks everywhere, there's acorns on every ridge, so how do you hunt that? So that's what we did. We found, okay, where can I get some natural kind of pinch points if they're walking the, the creeks and then cross anywhere except for these areas they can't cross here because it's, you know, a steep really steep banks so that's where we put you know food plots we'd leave 70 60 70 acres of timber in between the creek bed and and, and the food plot and then we went in and just dozed those some areas out and they're not you know really they're not big fields in the timber you know just um you know our smallest ones are probably a half an acre and our biggest ones are maybe three or four acres in the timber but really it wasn't that much work you know what you it was couple thousand dollars worth of uh you know time for somebody to come in with a dozer and you know really over time that's probably been our best spent money that we've ever had ever spent because it, it's really not that expensive and it really doesn't take all that much time in the whole scheme of things but that 
our strategy there were just pinch points, natural funnels in, in the timber. So where it was going to funnel deer down anyway, and then you'd have food there to stop them and, you know, to get them you know, coming in there. So that was our first strategy was let's find some natural, just geographic um, pinch points and then put our food pots in there to really funnel deer into the food pots to where, um, you know, where we can get shots at them and just to see them, see them in there. And then other than that, a lot of it, like in our fields, and our CRP graphs, because you got stuff that's in CRP, you can put 10% of that in the food pots. It was basically just looking, you know, where it's available. We put food wherever we could. And, you know, of course, you're going to want them in, you know, if you have a big CRP field, you want them in inside corners and things like that where deer naturally, naturally come out and where it's easy to get equipment into and things like that so you know there's there's definitely strategies of you know where you where you want to put those fields but you know in the big scheme of things a lot of our a lot of our farms just wherever we can yeah that makes sense now one other question kind of related how about entry and exit to your stands um, and how that relates to your food sources and different habitat improvements. Is that something you guys really think about um, before making any changes to the property or do you kind of um, adjust your entry and exit based on where you need to put the food, you know, given the different criteria you already mentioned? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's very important. And, and like we have farms here that never even had a stand in the timber for two and three years until I really felt that I knew the property and what, how the deer moved inside the timber. And so I'm really fanatical about that. But that, that's why you'll see most of our stands are on food plots. And during the rut, we'll get in the timber, you know, quite a bit. But most of the time, it's on food plots. And, you know, just <laughs> the reason for that is, we go all year long. All year long, we are in those fields. Once a week at least, we're in there checking cameras and checking our feeders to make sure that they're filled. And you learn this from at Tiffany's mom's house. We have a we put a feeder out in front of her house, and uh, you know when we for, it's only 100 yards or less in right in front of her house. When we first put that out there. You get deer coming in like at two in the morning, but if you drove, you know, if you even walked by the windows, they'd run. But now, after five years of that being out there, I mean, there's deer out there almost all day long. I mean, you can, like, especially Tiffany's mom, she can, she can drive right in about any time, and the deer don't even run. We'd let our dogs out, and you know, the deer just kind of, you know, they'll move ten yards and then come right back. So they've gotten used Jeez. to us being there, and you, you know that from, you know, how many deer live in the city limits. And, and they get used to people. I mean, I think if you wanted to every day work on it, you could probably eventually start feeding those deer out of your hand. So, you know, they'll, they're very adaptive. And so that's where I think we always used to talk about they keep everything totally low pressure, low impact, but I don't really feel that way anymore. I think where we have so much success on these big deer, broad daylight, you know, not even up against camera light, is that we are going almost every week I'm in my food pots checking cameras 
and checking feeders and checking the fields. And a lot of times the feeders are in those food boxes. And so I'll go up and I'll check them, hit the button, shake it, make sure that we've, you know, there's corn in there and, and, and the sugar beet crushed, and I'll bring bags out and put it out. And you can see on the cameras that so many times, even five minutes after I'm gone, a deer will be right in there checking because I'll usually run the feeder a little bit just to make sure that it's still working, like on our spin ones and, and things. So really my presence there nine months out of the year to them is positive for them. It's always kind of associated with food. But then when we get to the hunting season, it's kind of the same thing. We hunt it the same way we do all summer. Maybe once a week we'll go to that farm. I'd hit that field once, and then the next day you get another field, and the next next day another farm. And So really, in a 12-month period to a deer, it never changes for us. You know, it's not like the deer just totally untouched. They have the run of the whole place for nine months long. And then all of a sudden, hunting season comes and bam, somebody's in there every day. They know something is different. They're like, whoa, there are people in here all of a sudden. You know, so I think that um, our biggest strategy on stuff is, is it's not a lack of pressure, but it's consistent pressure throughout the year. The deer get used to that. And that's why we're hunting field edges a lot of times. And when we first came down here and we first started hunting, I mean, we were always up against camera light. Um, and then, you know, back those days, I mean, cameras were, you'd lose light 15, 20 minutes before actual shooting light was over, and we were always up against it. I can't tell you how many deer we just couldn't shoot because we were out of camera light. And now, heck, we got six, seven-year-old deer out at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you know, out feeding because they're, they've never been never really been bothered in the sense that we're there once a week all the time. So, and they don't associate us with danger, you know, for those nine months. So when you get to hunting season, it's just, oh, it's Lee or Tiffany again. They get a snout full of us every day, <laughs> you know, so they're not all that concerned with us. The difference is it's not like they're not going to run when we go out in the field. But so we don't pay any attention to scent control or anything all summer long. I mean, we're running the feeders and our cameras and anything else. Just make sure they get a snowfall of us every day. But then when it gets, comes to hunting season, then we're just fanatics about it. So, so many times we'll have deer get downwind of us. And, of course, they'll smell you. I mean, they'll do the head bob and they'll do all the whole routine. Yep. But the difference is when you do everything, just like your dog when you go pheasant hunting, it's There'll be pheasant tracks all over that pay no attention to it. And also, I'll get on one track, and the tail will be going, and they'll be going crazy. And they know when it's been, hey, there's been a pheasant just right here. But it's the same thing, that you don't need to fool them. You just need them to think that you're at 200 yards instead of 20 or that you were there an hour ago and not sitting there right now. And uh, and that's what we just get away with so much, and that's why we hunt the fields. But our timber is basically other outside of shed season, that is kind of off limits. Everyone says, you have a sanctuary. So, yeah, our timbers are sanctuary. And so, you know, when you go in the fields, they'll run off the fields. If I go in there, like this morning, when I went into our, our North Smith farm to go plant corn, there's 30 deer in there. But they'll run off to the edges, but they'll just come right back out as soon as you leave. But if you start going in the timber, you know, which is their safe spot now, you start going to the timber, and all of a sudden they run out onto your neighbor's property. So they always have to, for us, I always feel like they have to have a safe spot they can go to, and they're not going to go far. 
another come back out. So right. we don't really hunt the timber that much other than like the rut. And, but then it takes me, it can take us, you know, like I said, two and three years even to really figure out how the deer are moving, where they're bedding, how we can get in and out without, without, uh, you know, spooking them so much. But, you know, sometimes you just have to get in there when it's the rut, you just have to get in and sit and hope for the best. But, you know, we certainly aren't hunting 100 days in the timber. If we're hunting, you know, 100 days in a row, 90 of those days and 95 of them will be on those field edges. Because, you know, that's the advantage that we have is just that we have time on our side. Right, That, right. you know, we'll see stuff. You know, I got friends that come down and help me put stands up. And, man, this is where you got to be. You look at the, the spot right here and say, yep. But all the deer I want to shoot, I'm going to catch them eventually in, this, in the food plot. So why go in there and start blowing them out of there and, you know, disrupting things. And for me, the biggest thing is not that they're not going to come back, but you go in and blow one out onto your neighbors and your neighbor shoots it. So I just want to keep them comfortable on our farms and in the, in the timber and, uh, you know, shoot them on the field as much as I can. But, of course, you know, that we shoot a lot of them in the timber, too, right, during the rut. But it takes a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, work to figure out how to get in and out and how to get them past you where they're not yeah. bedded right by you, you know, to so when you get out, you, you spook them out of there. Ideally, you want them coming from somebody, going to somebody and catching them in the middle. So it takes us a while to figure that out because every farm is different. There's no thing that you can say, hey, this is what you need to do because every situation is different. Every farm is different. So it yeah. takes me a while to figure that out. But that's kind of our strategy is it's not no pressure, man. You have to have consistent pressure all year. If you look at, like, Wisconsin, you know, and they got, you know, when the opening day of rifle season is a national holiday. But, you know... <laughs> All the deer sitting there, all of a sudden, the first day of a season in Wisconsin hits, and that pumpkin patch comes out, and there's two million hunters in the field. Those deer know it. I mean, day two is totally different than day one, and that's what you want to avoid. So that's where I think the consistent pressure all year long is what really works for us. Yeah, so that's... those deer are not spooked of us being in the field because, hey, we've been in the field for nine months in a row here once or twice a week, and they're always associating us with food. You know, it's always a positive thing. You know, so they're not that spooked of us. So when we get to hunting season, same way, just once or twice a week, maybe in there. So to them, the pressure never changes. It's always the same. And that's probably the biggest, you know, thing that we've learned since since we started buying property and, and, and hunting our own places, that you – do not want no pressure on it. You want consistent year-round pressure. That's that's really interesting. It's definitely a different idea, but I can see how it works given you know your circumstances. That makes you know all the sense in the world. Is that is that conditioning? Um, but yeah, I'm curious if we flip the script a little bit and look at kind of a hypothetical because um, I'm curious about what your kind of process and mindset is. You'd mentioned this a little bit about learning new farms. Um, so let's say hypothetically, you know, tomorrow you have no hunting land anymore that you own. They take it all away from you, and now you have, let's say, a random 80-acre piece of private ground um, that you just have permission to hunt. You can't do any management. Um, maybe 50-50 ag and timber, like you said. I'm curious, you know, what would your mindset be and your process for, for figuring out how to hunt that this coming fall? Well, the first thing would be aerials. You know, you just go to the aerial photos and, and look and, and map what I always had before 
before we bought any farm that had the aerials and then I'd have a you know a, a transparency overlay with uh, um, you know with all the structures on it so you could see where the hills and and where it was steep and where it wasn't and and all that so you can kind of put together the the structure of of the timber you know as well so that would always help as far as like where your pinpoints and everything are but you always you know, anytime we've done that a lot. I mean, we'd go just knock on doors, places like we'd hunt in Iowa. Um, you know, we'd have a farm set up down here. Well, I mean, this is way back when I was in high school. You know, we'd come down here and go to a public place, and man, just deer weren't moving. You wouldn't see anything. You just go start knocking on doors. You'd get a farm. You just go to, you know, Google Earth and look at the maps, and you just started from scratch. So you always just started from the from the outside and go in. You know, I'd look at the fields, and you go look at them in the evenings or whenever deer are coming out, and always inside corners of fields or something. Like, let's start there. You know, even if when we're even if during hunting season, let's just pop up a stand on the field edge. You know, on the inside corners or places that just look likely. You know, that are away from the roads and away from where people can see them. If it's you know if there's a road along the edge, get back in the back corner where you, know, you, you can't see from the road whatever and start there and then we would just watch deer and see okay where are they coming out okay so he, and this is just deer it doesn't have to even be bucks even the does you know say okay where are they coming out okay well, let's move stands over those trails and then and then you'd uh then you start working your way in you know if you weren't seeing any of the bigger bucks and then you think well maybe they're just not getting there till dark then you might just go 50 100 yards down those trails and you know but you you'd map that up with your topos though and see okay is there any structure there that looks like it might be funneling them around something or is there you know something that would give you a hint uh, as to which way they're coming from but if there's not then we would just move in 100 yards and see what see where we're, where we happened to what we saw and we just that's the way that we always worked it was just from the outside and going in and just learning as you went and like I said if somebody took everything that we have away right now and they only had 80 acres to hunt, that's the way I would do it. Um, you know, you just look at aerials and try to and figure that out. But if it happened today, it would be a lot different because I'd be getting cameras out, and I would I would go in there and I'd walk the timber right now, even though it's leafed up and, and everything. Yeah, I would you can do still it. see the trails right yeah, now. I was just sitting there looking for mushrooms right now. Yeah, you can, you know, you can still learn a lot right now and see where rubs are and trails are and all that kind of stuff, you know. Um because, like I said, our deer, we've gotten pretty conditioned now to be not so afraid of us. And, you know, now that we've had a lot of these farms for 10 years, you know, even our oldest bucks have grew up fawns here knowing that hey, Lee and Tiffany are here all the time. They're feeding us. They're, you know, they're not really associating us with danger for most of the year. So, those, you know, we've got bigger deer. Um, you know, our oldest deer will be out well, so many times in broad daylight. But on a, you know, on a brand new piece, you can't count on that because you haven't really conditioned them all year long. So if you live nearby, you'd be way better off going in once a week with a bucket of corn or something and putting a bucket of corn out so they get your scent. And, and hey, it's always associated with something positive. I put a camera right there, and if you could, you know, just do the whole summer, get them conditioned to you being there and you're associated with food mm-hmm. and things that, so when you start coming in to hunt it once a week, they're not, bam, turning nocturnal because somebody's coming in there. But if you couldn't do that, well, then, you know, you just, 
you just have to do it. You just have to be there. You just get lucky enough to be there on the day that he's on his feet, you know, in daylight. And, uh, you know, those things, every farm, again, is different. But you'd look at the topos and the aerials and figure out if there's any internal funnels and, you know, because you might catch them in the timber in daylight more than on the field edges. And, you know, we almost always did back, we, you know, when I hunted Minnesota for sure. But uh, even on those, lots of times you'd knock on doors during the season even, and somebody lets you hunt, so we'd start on the fields and work our way in. You know, on those trails that were the heaviest used, just start moving in on them. And once you got in 75 yards and hunted there and see which way deer are coming from, you know, all right, once they come from that way, I can move in a little bit farther. You know, and, uh, you know, then those are places that you sat all day once you moved in a couple hundred yards on them. I got a question regarding passing deer. All right, so in 2010, I passed a 150-inch 10-pointer. The next year, I passed, uh, let's see, a 140-inch, 150-inch 8-pointer, and I about lost my mind. I called myself stupid and and all these things because it is very hard. Now, you're taking, you guys are taking the game to a whole new level because you can um, how hard is it for you guys to pass a Boone and Crockett caliber deer at, at maybe a four-year-old, knowing that he has the potential to make that bigger jump next year? Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. Um, 
I would say it seems to be me who a half the time does pass some of those giants. I mean, we've had some 163-year-olds, 173-year-olds that, you know, are 100% off the hit list because Lou always says, you know, those are one in a million deer. To get those through to be four or five and six years old, it's, I mean, they could be just a new record. I mean, and, and not that we care about a record, but, I mean, it's gotten where Lee's, like, enjoys actually seeing them grow and to see, like, what they can actually do more so than obviously shooting them. But, I mean, obviously we like to shoot them, but it's like he just always wants to see what they can do. So I would say, like, it's it's actually gotten where it's not very hard for me to pass some of those younger deer that are high scoring because I would much rather shoot a 146-year-old eight-point any day of the week than a 173-and-a-half-year-old because it's like when you walk up to that buck and it's got the big head, you know, big body, it just, you know, it just you know it's a mature deer. It's like nothing that beats that. And I have had that 100% feeling when I've shot a deer that I think was big, you know, because sometimes when they come running through the woods, they can catch it a little bit, especially for me more so than Lee. But, and I walk up to it and I'm like, you know, they got the little skinny neck. They might have a big rack, but they obviously look a lot bigger because they're, they're young. But I, I've gotten where it doesn't bother me a bit to actually pass those high scoring deer yeah. when they're young. It doesn't, you know, it's not so much about the score as it is about the age, yeah. you know, because we've passed deer that are probably in the 190s that were young deer. Wow. And you're like, those are one in a million, and unfortunately, we've lost all those big deer like that to neighbors because, um, and you can't blame them. You know, it's still 190 inch deer, but they're three year olds, and they're kind of the dumbest deer in the farm. You know, because they're they're still getting pushed around by the older ones. And they want to be prime breeders, but they're not. There's enough old deer on top of them, so they're on. Those are the ones that you rattle in, you grunt, and they come running in. You know, you're not doing that. You know, six, seven year old bucks aren't coming running into your rattling or to, to your grunt call like a two and three year old is so you know we made that mistake when we first moved here we were like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna manage i'm gonna plant food plots and i'm gonna you know get in and i felt you know okay yeah we're passing 130 140 inch deer but they could have been you know four and five or six year old eight points and you thought you're doing the right thing and the first one 60 and 70 that came in we whacked them and you know inevitably most of those were three-year-olds and by the third year we had our farm Every ridge was, was run by an old crappy eight-point, and they would run <laughs> off every other good genetic deer we had, you know, the young ones. And they're like, well, that is terrible management, you know, passing the, the poor genetic deer and shooting our good young, great genetic deer. So, like I said, it all is a learning experience. You have to shoot some of those younger deer in those 150s and 40s and and things and get that out of your system say okay i'm ready to move on i've already done that so now we kind of do it strictly by age i mean some of our deer that are my top deer on the hit list that are like six and seven that just keep getting passes are not high scoring deer per se like we have a deer we call starbucks where you've got just huge brow tines but he doesn't have a whole bunch else going on he was just an eight point but just he just put up little fours this year but you know he may be high 50s to 60s, maybe. But he's probably like number one on our hit list and because he's going to be sick. And we have a lot of history with him, and we've watched him grow since he was two years old. But, you know, he'll be on our hit list way ahead of we have some good young, it's on that part in particular, a good 12-point that's on there that was three last year that was probably in the 70s. So, you know, you wouldn't even think twice about passing him. You're like, no, I mean, he's got... 
break tonight. We need to let him get to five no matter what. And, you know, the deer that are five and six already, you know, they might be number one on our hit list, and even though they're not near the highest scoring deer. But, you know, we've just gotten to the point where it's like we want to see all our good genetic deer reach their potential, um, especially those, you know, like I said, those 193-year-olds. I mean, some of those deer that were killed by neighbors, they could have literally been world-class deer. I mean, they are you know, one in a million. They could have been that 240s and 260s or, or maybe even high. They had all, all the potential for it. You don't know how where they would have went with it, but I sure would have liked to have found out. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that just doesn't always happen. But the, it's it's nice to get, it would be really nice to get one of those real big ones through to, you know, five or six. Because normally even if you get them to four, then they're not so easy for the neighbors to kill because they just don't show themselves as much and they don't fall for the rattling and, and grunting so much that, you know, they've got those. They don't have to chase them. They don't, they're not running around like, you know, like the two and three year olds are. So we can get them through the four that we normally can, can hold, hold them on the farms. But, you know, it's not so hard to, to pass on the score, high scoring deer um, if they're young. You know, so we don't, if it's a, you know, if it's a five-year-old deer, I don't care what it scores, we're not passing it, generally. So, you know, and, and it is hard because you'll see a lot of those young deer because those are the ones that are on their feet, three and fours, you know, especially threes. But that's, you know, a lot of people say, man, how would you pass that deer? It's a 170-inch deer or sometimes even bigger. And they like, well, he's three. That makes it easy for us. But, you know, that you know, a lot of times you lose those to your neighbors, but a lot of times you don't. And so those are the ones that you just want to keep, you want to get them, you know, breeding, and, you you know, if you get them through to five, you reach their maximum potential, plus they've been breeding does for the last, you know, two and three years that you just keep those genetics going. Yeah. That's... Rather than knocking them out at three. Do your neighbors ever uh, send you thank you cards or, like, plow your driveways to say thanks for <laughs> growing all these big deer? <laughs> <laughs> it helps, though, you know, a, a lot of it, you know, you talk about neighbors, but, uh, you know, a lot of the neighbors had never even seen 130s or 40s, even though they lived in Iowa, you know, because they, they just, you know, if they're not super serious, they just, you know, like most people, they just, yeah, I enjoy hunting, so I'm going to go out and shoot one. So, you know, they'd never really seen that many big deer, you know, 130s and 140s, and they, you know, thought we were the jerks because, you know, that was a place they used to hunt, and they used to get 30 guys and drive it and stuff, and now they can't do it anymore. But, see, now... Every year, all, we'll never shoot any of our three-year-olds or four-year-olds. And so you got a lot of, you know, older deer on top of them when those three-year-olds hit four, and they're ready to be prime breeders, and they have enough deer on top of them. They're going to push out onto the neighbors. So now our neighbors are all of a sudden shooting these 170s and 160s and 180s and things like they never had seen before. And I mean, some of these old-timers have hunted here for 50 years and never had seen deer like that. And now they're kind of seeing it. They're, you know, when they go shoot like a 170 or 180 type deer that they'd never shot before, you know, they're pumped about it, you know, and so they're excited about it. Now they kind of get on board and they're kind of seeing, it's like, man, we never saw a deer like this until Lee moved in. And now, you know, we're pushing off, you know, a good number of four-year-olds every year onto the neighbors. So they're kind of getting on board because just like I said, once they, once they shoot one of the big ones, then it's like, well, now a 130 doesn't seem so, you know, doesn't seem so great to me anymore because we're seeing a lot more big ones. So then they kind of get on board on it. So I think a lot of them kind of realize that, 
hey, the management does work, and they, you know, they saw it firsthand, and so, you know, now they kind of get on board too. So it it, it helps. You know, we have some good neighbors and or mostly good neighbors, a couple of bad ones. Yeah, but, a couple of bad ones. You know, most of them in, in general are excited about you know once you talk to them and they want the deer that they're seeing and you know they get on board and it kind of helps the whole area. You know, to get those deer, you know, to a, a whole another age structure on them. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, enough of like the strategy type of stuff. I have a question. Um, let's see here. I'm looking at my little list. We have like 700 questions we want to ask you guys, and obviously time constraints aren't going to allow this. Unless, are you guys free till about midnight tonight? <laughs> Absolutely no. not. Well, yeah. okay. Corn, I got a plan. I got 80 percent chance of rain tomorrow. So, <laughs> otherwise we would. Okay. All right. Well, I'll, I'll we'll knock some of these out real quick. Okay, because you've made what m- most people consider a hobby. Um, your guys's job. How do you keep that passion for deer hunting as that season progresses, as you're dealing with the business workings of um, the crush and all that other, you know, all the other business that goes on? Yeah, you know, that's. I don't think it's anything that you have to try to do. Like for me, people ask me all the time, like, "Don't you ever get sick of it?" I'm like, "No, I am just." It, it's funny because like Tiffany's cousin Brian came down turkey hunting, and. I didn't have a tag for that season. I didn't have one until third and fourth season, and he came down second season. And I was so excited to go out with him. He I couldn't sleep every day. I, I couldn't sleep. <laughs> I mean, I was, and finally it was like three in the morning. I couldn't just, I'm going to get up and go work. I just got on the computer and uh, did some, some work stuff, and I left at four in the morning. So I'll go put a blind up to his bow hunting. We were going to pop it up when we got there. So I'll just get there really early. And I'll get the blind up and decoys out and everything. Then I'll just go back and sit in the car or in the truck and wait for him to get there to meet me and then I'll, I already have it all set up and I'm just like I'm so pumped and so excited about because I, mean, I feel like a 12 year old you know or feel the way I did when I was 12 years old still today um, so I think that's just something that it's not hard for me to do at all I, we hunt 100 days and you're always exhausted and you're tired because you're up late you got friends that come and they stay up till midnight or 1 in the morning and you get you know and musicians come and it'll stay up till three in the morning playing guitars and get up at four and go and you're so exhausted you know after three days you know they can't even function anymore but they go home but we keep going <laughs> yeah. easy for them right to. yeah i mean i was like not that we have to i mean i'm basically my own boss i can take off all the days i want to but i never have never never have it tiffany maybe a couple days a year she might i'm just gonna skip the morning and i'm gonna go up I want to get my nails done, or get, or gonna go get my hair done, or something, and just relax for a day. But I can't, even, I can't think of a single day. But it's usually not ever for the whole day. It's usually no, it's just like, like a morning off. Yeah, here nah. there. But it kills me to think that I'm like, okay, I wonder what they're seeing. I, I know if I sat in that stand, something would have come out, you know. So it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. definitely. I mean, I would think. I actually, I would say the hunting part makes the rest of the business side all worthwhile because the business yeah. side we don't really like to deal with sometimes but yeah. that's what makes the hunting part you know all the better yeah we start hunting august 16th and go right through till january you know 10th for big game and then we go right into duck hunting and pheasant hunting and everything else but if we wouldn't have to if i would say if, you know if it got tiring to us or didn't like it or it's like oh it's getting old or some of that we just wouldn't do it because we don't have to but i i still don't i don't feel any different now than I did when I was 
like I said, 10 or 12 years old. I still get just as excited about it every single day. Um, I know that probably a lot of people wouldn't be, but I think that's part of what I was talking about earlier. I'm just so infatuated with deer, so my whole life, everything you're going to do, every day I get up and think about deer. How can I improve the habitat? How can I you know, make this deer bigger? How can I make their lives easier? How about all the ticks that are on them? Is there something that I can do to spray them or get something that gets the ticks off them? Is that going to be less stress on those deer, you know, make it more comfortable for them and, to, you know, grow bigger racks on You know, a lot of people don't, you know, all summer long, they may get up and think about, you know, going boating. Not me. I think every single day about deer is what I think about when I get up. So I think that just naturally brought me to where we're at. And just your success as a hunter, we shoot a lot of good deer, but we do so much work, and I put so much time in it that most people, it isn't worth it to them. They just, they're not that infatuated with deer. They want to shoot a good one, like I was saying earlier, but eh, it's not that important to them whether they're going to spend every waking minute on it. But there are people, I think there's definitely, you know, there are white-tailed nuts like me out there, and I think most of those people, if you're very passionate about something, you'll be successful at it if you put that much time and effort into it. Yeah, no, I think I'm right there with you, Lee. Uh, like my, uh-huh. my grandpa always told me was that if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life, and you know that's what I've tried to do. That doesn't feel like work if you're actually passionate about it and really loving every second of it. So for, uh, for white-tailed addicts like us, it's a, it's a good place to be. Definitely. Yeah. I, I would say I remember my sisters telling me, "You're crazy, you know, just about hunting in general." I was like, "Yeah, you're never gonna do anything with your life. All you ever think about is hunting." And I was like, "Yep." <laughs> and I was like, "You know, I feel sorry for, I'm, I feel sorry for people that don't because I mean, that don't have something, not necessarily hunting, but just if you don't have anything that you feel that passionate about in your life, they're missing out. Because like for me, I would say I could never be depressed. I could never be, you know." Anything like that, because I just every day I'd look so forward to hunting season. And that's what really makes like having farms, and, and even if you didn't have farms, just to go out and you know plant food plots or going out and looking at deer. Thanks to me, that's hunting every day. This is the real hunting. It's it's now. You know, when October comes around for us, you know, I'm sitting in the deer stand. And I'm, I'm hunting, but the important part of hunting is done outside of those three months of hunting season. Mm-hmm. I always compare it to Most a golfer. Definitely. I was like, you know, look at a golfer. They go, you spend thousands of hours on putting greens and driving ranges and everything, perfecting your game, and then you go one hour for every thousand hours to a golf course to test what you learned. You know, to be a pro golfer, you don't go out and golf every day on a golf course. You go out and you hit and hit and hit with every driver, you know, and every every iron just to get all those shots perfected someplace, and then you go and you test it out on a golf course. It's no different in hunting. All the work is done between, for me, January 15th and October 1st. That's when all the work is done and learning and perfecting all those things. And then the three months of hunting season is the time when I go to the golf course and you just test what did my homework pay off? Did I practice in the right ways if you're a golfer? Did I work on the right shots? Did I, did I cover everything? As a golfer, you go out and you'd learn that. You'd know, and you know, golfing for a few weeks, get out on the actual course and say, "Did my practice pay off? Did my score go down?" But that's that's the important part is now, where a lot of people aren't thinking about that. 
if you're like I was trying to, you know, get into it earlier, if you if you wake up October first and blow the doe out, the, the dust off your bow and say, I'm gonna go on a deer hunt today well that's like me right now going saying, Okay, I'm gonna go grab my golf clubs and I'm gonna go right. out on the golf course and I haven't golfed since college and it's like I'm gonna be horrible at it. <laughs> and just expect to go out and, you know, shoot a sixty nine. It's pretty much not gonna happen. And it's kind of the same thing with deer hunting. Do you think you're just going to get up one day and just go out and shoot a 180? Probably not going to happen without doing the work previous to it. Yeah, so true, so true. So we are coming up here on time pretty quick. I appreciate you guys spending so much time with us, but I had one last quick question from one of our readers. Uh, this comes from Sean Groves. He just asks simply, you know, what has been your single greatest learning experience so far as a hunter? And I'd be interested to hear from both of you guys on that one. I, you know, I can I, you can think about yours for a minute, Tiffany, because I think for mine has been what we've already talked about is that where I thought the um, no pressure was always what you wanted. You read that, and it was always pounded into you, keep you know, low pressure and everything else. And I think that that consistent pressure is what has made us so much more successful. And like I, I talked about even earlier about that feeder, when we realized that, it's like, man, why is it now that there's a hundred deer in Linda's yard and they'll be laying in their yard and you can drive in in broad daylight and they'll kind of move off a little bit, but they, they won't even run off the field. Um, and, you know, we can let our dogs out now and the dogs know not to chase deer. So they, you know, they'll go out and go to the bathroom and deer still stand around the yard. I mean, we have a feeder out there, but we also have big, you know, food plots around our house too. And those are all her pets and we can't, we can't hunt around her house, but you know, we don't really want to because we love coming out here and looking at deer, too. But you'll come here in November and there'll be 170-inch deer in their yard, you know, Jeez. just standing around eating and doesn't pay that much attention to you. You can, you can drive in here and, and uh, you know, it might run away from the house a little bit, but certainly not out of sight. And I'll go back to feeding. And it's like, man, you look how almost tame they, can, they get. And like I said, just the same thing in the suburban areas. But and when we first started hunting, everything was up against camera light. Now it's not. And you kind of learn that that boy. Every if I can get in at once a week at least to these feeders and my cameras and things to check those and be putting out you know sugar beet crush and food form you know in the middle of the day and stuff you know once a week at least that they're always associating me with food and they're not really associating me with with danger for nine months of the year and then those three months I'm hunting kind of do it the same way just once a week that. But we've had so much success at that. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that I've learned, um, the biggest aha moment, basically, if you per se, for me, is that we've gotten more and more successful and more and more older and bigger deer in the field during daylight. And uh, and I think I pretty much attribute it to that. And just being here obviously helps that I can get out at least once a week. But even if you couldn't, even if I had a 9-to-5 job every weekend if you were out, on on your place if it's close enough that you can do that and the exit is go put out i bet you if you just went out every you know every weekend and put a bucket of corn out you know for the nine months out of the year before hunting season that that would make a huge difference when hunting season came and you went in there that first day you know they'd be expecting you to come and put corn out even if you couldn't bait during hunting season you just that first time you come out even though there's no corn there bang that could be coming like clock we're kind of like bears you, know, you go bear baiting, and the deer, the bear, you know, heck, you drive your four-wheeler, and they hear you coming, and they're all standing at the bait site waiting for you. 
<laughs> you know, kind of get it the same way. Deer can be the same, you know, similar to the, those results that you could have. So I think that's probably the biggest thing that I've learned, and just to be patient on on things. That, you know, it's so easy to to say, "Wow, gosh, that's a nice buck." If I don't shoot it, my neighbor will. So you shoot it. It's like, no, you're the neighbor that everyone's talking about. If that's what you're thinking is, I got to shoot it because my neighbors. Will. I hear that everywhere right. we go. <laughs> yeah. No, you are the neighbor that you're talking about. So it just the patience on that, you know, and it's okay if you're happy with a, a small buck or whatever. If you're a first-time hunter or a young hunter, you know, you just want to have some success. But once you, you know, once you've shot some, if you're just going to cut the rack up and throw it on the woodpile, hey, just shoot a doe, you know, and just be enjoy the hunt, just enjoy being out there. And, and uh, you know, hold out for a good one. You may not be this year, may not be next year. If you hit a, if you get a good one, but you hold out long enough, you'll eventually get get the kind of deer you're looking for. Yes. As far as for me, I would say like I mean, I wasn't raised hunting. I I would still consider you know even after I think I've been hunting probably 12 or 13 years now that heck half the time I still feel like a rookie. So I mean, for me, it, it's everything is just like a learning experience. I mean, I feel like from where I started. Right when the first time I ever went out on a hunt with Lee and I shot my first buck the first night I hit in a stand, I sat in a stand to like where I've come now. I mean, I've, I've learned so, so much, but I feel like I still have so much to learn. I mean, obviously I, I, I'm with Lee all of the time and there'll be times during a seminar, I'm like, oh my gosh, I never thought about that that way, you know? And it's like, I'll, I'll think about something that he, he's, you know, changed his philosophy on or strategy on or, and I, it just, blows me away i'm like that is brilliant so i mean for me i mean geez my whole hunting career is a learning experience i mean there's so many things that i've learned from start to finish right now so i i would still say that i'm a i'm a work in progress yeah i guess uh you and i and probably all of us right there's definitely i mean i think that's a big part of why at least i love hunting whitetail so much is that really you can learn something new every time you're out there it's oh absolutely yeah they're always teaching us new things that's for sure not me. I already know everything. <laughs> well, I guess we got to give you a show then, Dan. <laughs> Not. Never figure out. Whenever yeah. you think you got something figured out, there'll be something totally different. But that's what makes it so fantastic. I mean, that, if you yep. could figure it out and you knew exactly what they were doing, um, it wouldn't, it be, wouldn't fun. be fun anymore. Yeah. But that's, that's what's so exciting about them because they're all individuals, just like people. They're all different. They all do different things. You know, you can say bucks react this way or something. Well, one buck might react that way, but that doesn't mean all of them do. So, you know, it's you're constantly learning and and uh, evolving. You know, and and you know, cause, and, but every deer is different. Different tactics work for different deer. So, you know, everything that you learn, it it you know, it may not work for all deer, but it may work for that one that you want. So, that's what makes it so much fun. Just keep trying stuff all new all the time and and learning. And, Basically, the best way to learn is just by out watching them every night. So we're fortunate enough to be able to to watch a lot of them. Yeah, yeah, no, just be, being out there with whitetails and ex- observing them, that helps so much. That's awesome. Well, sure. I think that's a perfect place for us to wrap things up here. Um, so with that said, you know, if our listeners want to catch your TV show or get more information about you guys and what you're up to, you know, where should they go? Uh, TheCrush.tv, and all of our information is on that. And then also, um, I noticed that I, I, I was looking at, not that I wasn't paying attention to the interview, but I did look at Twitter, and I noticed <laughs> you guys were on Twitter. We're, of course, on Twitter and Facebook and, 
Like I said, you know, you can find all of our latest information on the TV and all of our appearance schedules and everything that we've got going on right on our website. And then another cool thing is um, a lot of people don't realize if you go on our website, we have a, a live deer cam where, you know, yes. it's literally just set up and it's totally free and it's so cool to see some of those deer. Yeah, it's on one of our feeders and we learn a lot from that even. You know, even when I'm out hunting sometimes, I'll, you know, I'll be saying, I'm not, I'm not seeing anything. I wonder what's happening. So I'll go to that live camera. It's a place that, that we don't hunt and there's a feature there so you can just kind of see deer how they're naturally how they're naturally reacting, so you can kind of see it's like, well, man, there's no deer at the feeder yet, so they must just not be moving early. Where you see does in there, and bucks are just starting to chase them. When's the rut really starting? You know, so you know, see, are, are there any bucks chasing those does around? So it really helps you. You can learn a lot from it, but it is neat to see. Like right now, they're just getting, you know, they're only up two or three inches, but when you get in July, when these deer start coming out, you'll see there's been 170, 180-inch deer on that camera and pretty regular too so they're they're neat to see and there's wild deer and you know, the deer that we we hump but not on that end of the farm we'd say well if we if we get to the other end on some of our food plots something we'd hunt them but we don't hunt that whole end of the farm on that so we haven't shot any of the deer that have been on it so far but you know there's a possibility that we could yeah so, I, 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 love, all... I love that camera i found it i think i discovered last year at some point i remember driving down uh during the rut down to southern ohio where i was hunting and a buddy and i had your live camera going on our cell phone the whole drive down just because we were curious to see what deer might pop up that was pretty cool yeah Um, yeah yeah it's a lot of fun well that said then you know we'll make sure to include the links to your website and that different information on the website at our show notes and uh then, of course, I just want to thank you both so much. We really appreciate the time you took, you know, I know time out of your busy schedule to speak with us, and it's been great. I think we all learned a lot, and it's been a really interesting conversation. So thank you so much. Hey, thank you for having us. Yeah. I, I tell you, anytime you guys want to talk, we're available. And as you can tell, you know, there's not anything that Lee likes to talk about more than white tails. <laughs> <laughs> well, us too, so it's perfect. All right, wow. I'd say that was pretty interesting. Don't you think so, Dan? Yeah, it kind of gives a different perspective than what everybody else sees or thinks. I mean, obviously, Lee is a fanatic when it comes to uh, whitetails and how much time and energy he actually puts into it. Oh, yeah. You know, you know? and to, to defend all the TV guys out there, you know, these guys are filming hours and or hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage all edited down to you know a 22 minute tv show yeah so it takes it takes work there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes that's for sure that's right so that said then we do need to wrap things up like we said but i believe you had a quick announcement you wanted to share with the listeners today is that right yes um i actually started a blog myself and it's called nine finger chronicles the nine finger chronicles and it's uh the nine finger chronicles or excuse me it's ninefingerchronicles.com and uh it's pretty much just a little bit of a lighter side to the hunting um you know i'm having fun with it it's not going to be too serious uh so you know you can visit me on facebook i have a twitter um i'm nine or fort worth nine fingers is my uh twitter feed and nice. again that uh i got my website up and that's uh ninefingerchronicles.com cool. so 
Very cool. Well, I'm uh, excited to check it out, and I'll make sure to include a link in the show notes as well so that if any of the listeners want to check out the Nine Finger Chronicles and hear about your crazy stories, that's where to find them. Perfect. Excellent. Well, with that said, thank you so much to everyone out there listening today. We're thrilled that you've taken the time out of your day to join us, and I hope you enjoy this episode. If you're new to the show, be sure to head over to iTunes and hit the subscribe button so that you'll get updates when new shows are released. And if you're a longtime listener, we of course would love it if you could leave a rating or review on iTunes as well. We'd also like to thank our partners who help make this show possible. Big thanks to Sitka Gear, Bushnell Optics, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Carbon Express Arrows, Lacrosse Boots, Big and J Long Range Tractants, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. Be sure to visit wiredhunt.com slash episode 7, that's the number 7, to view the show notes from today's episode. And if you're new, head over to wiredhunt.com to sign up for our Whitetail Fix newsletter, which will help you get updates on what's new and interesting on the blog. With all that out of the way, thanks again, Wired Hunt Nation, and until next time, have a great week and stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.